0: Just to kind of give you guys, if you weren't here with us last week, we looked at in the book of Acts we're we're beginning the missionary journeys of Paul. And last week we looked at the first leg of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And that was on the island of Cyprus, which was his partner Barnabas' hometown, or where he was born. This week we're gonna look at the next leg on that journey. Uh, where they leave Cyprus, the island, and they go back to the mainland of Asia Minor and uh, this area around Pisidian Antioch. And uh, they end up in this, this this Roman city called Pisidian Antioch. And this section begins with a reference. I want to point this out. It, we talked about this last week, but it begins with a reference to Paul and his companions. Because remember, when they set out from the other Antioch, it was Barnabas and Saul and then While they were on the island of Cyprus, it flipped, and now it's Paul and his companions. So now Paul's taking the lead, and he's now functioning as the lead minister of the gospel on this incredible missionary journey that the Holy Spirit had set them out for. And so he's really stepping into that position. And in today's passage, and you know this from what we just read, Paul boldly shares the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, he always boldly shares the gospel. In fact, he asks for people to pray for him that the Spirit would enable him to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we see that clearly in today's passage. And the Apostle Paul clearly understands the significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ and how to share Christ with others. And Paul models effective gospel ministry. And there's folks, there's no reason we can't be as effective as Paul was in gospel ministry. Can I say that again? There's no reason why we can't be as effective as Paul was in gospel ministry. He was not some sort of superhero, Marvel style, right? He was just a man, but he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? Many of us, and this is true for me at times as well, and has been characteristic of me at different times in my life, but many of us feel insecure when it comes to sharing the gospel, We feel insecure when it comes to talking to other people about our faith in Christ and sharing the hope that we have in Christ with others. But do you ever wonder why that is? I think that at least partially, it's because we don't always have a firm grasp on the basics of the gospel or the basics of gospel ministry. And that's why I called this sermon Gospel Ministry 101. Today's big idea is simply that ministers of the gospel, i.e. everybody that follows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that ministers of the gospel must understand gospel ministry. And our passage really reveals a lot about effective gospel ministry. And specifically, it helps us to understand, in terms of gospel ministry, the context, the content, and the contest and uh, that's my pastoral alliteration for the day. So, we're going to look at each of those three things the context of gospel ministry, the content, as well as the contest that it will prove to be. So, first of all, gospel ministry will always have a context, there will always be specifically a human context. We don't, I know uh, Kevin mentioned preaching the gospel to ourselves earlier. And, and that is good, and we should always do that. You can, you know, look in the mirror and preach the gospel to yourself, because we need to be reminded of those truths all the time. But when we're talking about gospel ministry here, we're talking about talking to other human beings about the good news of Jesus Christ. So there's always going to be a human context. And that's going to include all the people that God has sovereignly placed in your life, in our lives, who need the hope of the gospel. And every one of us in this room is surrounded by people day in and day out that need the hope of Jesus Christ, the hope of eternal life, of forgiveness, of reconciliation to God, our creator. And that's the human context for the gospel ministry. And it's always changing because no two people are the same and no two groups of people are the same. So that context is always changing in terms of how we have to be adapting the good news To different people with different backgrounds and from different cultures and that speak different languages and have different idioms and have different personalities and all these other experiences that are going to differ. And so that human context is always changing, which means we always have to be adapting the good news of the gospel to our audience. And in verses 13 to 15, if you want to look at that with me, we see the human context for Paul's gospel ministry. How does it start? He's in Pisidian Antioch and he is invited. He and Barnabas, both being Jewish themselves, are invited to the synagogue to to speak in this Roman city of Pisidian Antioch, which had a sizable Jewish population. There was a sizable Jewish settlement there. So they might have had several synagogues, but they get invited to speak. And his audience, as you can imagine, was very familiar with the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, but the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets and the writings. They were very in tune with that, very knowledgeable of it. And they would have been paying really close attention to what Paul was teaching about the Hebrew Scriptures and their fulfillment. And then, so that's the human context. And then the gospel also has a historical context. This is the big overarching story of Scripture and and how the, the specific gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, fits into that big overarching story of Scripture and, and that's what I, I call here the historical context. It's the story of Israel, chosen of God, in the Old Testament, which looked forward, always looked forward in those promises uh, in and through Israel, to and through Israel. It always looked forward to, to the fulfillment of God's promise in the personal work of Jesus Christ. That's our contention as Christians, is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all those promises, all those covenantal Agreements or promises in the Old Testament, and so that's that's the the historical context in the sense of um, the history of the Old Testament. And for Paul, the historical context for the gospel would have also included the recent first century events. We're only like fifteen years outside of when Jesus Christ was crucified, died, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. That was like fifteen years before Paul is speaking in the synagogue. So that's recent Jewish history. For, for Paul and his contemporaries. And so it would have included the ministry of John the Baptist, who is well-known among the Jewish people and beyond as a prophet. And it would have included the ministry of Jesus, uh, especially that last three and a half years of his life, ending in his crucifixion and resurrection, which we now have in the Gospels in the New Testament. So in verses 16 to 22, Paul reviews ancient Israelite history from the law and the prophets some of which had just been read in the synagogue. They would have begun that synagogue service by reading from the law and the prophets. So he picks up on the reading of the law and the prophets in the synagogue, and he shares this historical context for the gospel from the Hebrew scriptures. He speaks of God choosing the patriarchs. Remember that when I read that they cho- he chose our fathers, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Uh, He speaks of the exodus from Egypt and how God redeems uh, his people out of Egypt and forms the nation Israel. He talks about the wilderness wanderings, the conquest of the promised land, the period of judges culminating in Samuel the prophet, the request for a king and Saul's reign for 40 years. And finally, he talks about God's choice of David to be his own anointed king, and the recipient of his promises. That's what we call the Davidic covenant. That's where God makes all these incredible promises, not just to David, but promises a blessing that will come through David and his ultimate descendant. Okay? And then in verses 23 to 25, Paul fast forwards a thousand years of Israelite or Jewish history and uh, arrives at David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, the, the son of Mary. And so he skips a thousand years and arrives at Jesus, who he is saying is putting forward as the fulfillment of God's promises to David and to Israel and to the rest of the world through David. David was a king. He was supposed to have a descendant that would reign on his throne forever. And you're scratching your head going, how's that going to happen? Well, he's going to tell us how that's going to happen. But Paul points out that John the Baptist, who was a recognized Jewish prophet... The Jewish historian Josephus and others talk about John's ministry. He was a recognized Jewish prophet. After 400 years of God's silence uh, to Israel, he appears on the scene preparing the way for, for the Lord, for Jesus. And, um, and that he had been sent to specifically prepare people's hearts. How? How did John the Baptist prepare? How did he prepare the way for the coming Messiah? Through a ministry of baptisms for repentance, he was calling Israel to repent of their unbelief and to turn to God and in humility open their hearts to the coming Messiah from God to receive God's blessing and the fulfillment of God's promises. That was his ministry, to repent from sin and unbelief. And gospel ministry will always have a context. Paul's human context is different. I don't speak in synagogues ever. I've never spoken in a synagogue. His human context was a synagogue full of people in the first century who were absolutely steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets and the Writings. So what? So he shares the historical context for the gospel with a summary of ancient Israelite history and an overview of the events that had just happened in Palestine, in Jerusalem, involving John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. So he adapts to his human context. And I think the better we know the historical context for the gospel that is found in Scripture, I think the better we understand that context historically and the better we understand our human context, the people that God has placed in our lives around us, the better we will be at intentionally engaging people with gospel ministry. But gospel ministry isn't just about the human and historical context. Gospel ministry will always have certain content. Guys, the gospel is just, it's not just whatever you think it is, okay? It's not just the good news that you think is good news that you came up with, right? We live in a world that completely denies uh, absolute truth or objective reality, objective truth. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's absolutely wrong. The good news of Jesus Christ has specific content attached to it. We can't just make it up, all right? It will always be the good news about specifically the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But even as we consider our context, we can relate that unchanging content of the good news in different ways. Do you understand what I'm saying? You don't have to, like, every time you share the gospel with someone, it doesn't have to be this, like, rote, you know, robotic, like, and then Jesus died for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead, and now you can have forgiveness by trusting in him and eternal life. Like, you don't have to say it like that. But all of that is the unchanging content of the gospel. But you can adapt it in different ways, depending on... A lot of the times I talk to people, and depending on what they're wrestling with, whatever the hole in their soul is that they recognize, if they're searching for hope, if they're scared of death, if they're broken up by a broken, sinful relationship that ended in brokenness or whatever, like talk to them in that context and and share the hope in that context the content's not going to change but the way we uh share it will and just consider how paul communicates the gospel in verses 26 to 41 He, he speaks of the person and work of jesus christ as fulfilling the hebrew scriptures that's so key to his argument and then he supports this with three different old testament passages from the psalms and the prophets because again who's he talking to People that knew the Psalms and the Prophets, backward and forward. And then he provides a final warning from Habakkuk 1.5. Okay, so scriptural fulfillment, scriptural support, and then a scriptural warning for these people steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. So first, I want to just read again the meat of Paul's gospel presentation. Guys, we cannot hear the gospel enough. So I want to, I want to just read exactly how Paul shares the gospel from the inspired pen, of Luke, the inspired words of Luke, the author. In verses 26 to 33, he says this after he provides that historical context. He says, brothers, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. He's talking about this salvation. He's talking about the promises God made to Israel and to David and through the rest, to the rest of the world through them. And he says to us, this message of this salvation has been sent for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers. That's the Jewish religious leadership in Jerusalem, recognizing neither him. That is Jesus, the Savior. They didn't recognize who he was, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. So they didn't recognize him nor the declarations of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. In other words, they're all good Jewish people going to synagogue. On the you know to 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 hear the law and the prophets, and what he's saying is, not only do they miss who Jesus was, they miss the meaning of the very scriptures that they're reading in synagogue every week, that are pointing forward to the personal work of Christ. And he says that by doing so, they have fulfilled these scriptures uh, by condemning Jesus. And though they found no grounds for putting him to death, i.e., he was innocent. They found no grounds for putting him to death. They asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out everything that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. And then I love the word but in scripture. It says, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, we know 40 days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. These are his disciples that were following him. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to those of us who are the descendants by how? By raising Jesus. Folks, in these verses, Paul shares the gospel, which he refers to as the message of this salvation this salvation that's looked forward to in the Hebrew scriptures. First, what does he do? First, he recounts how Christ was crucified, died, and was buried in accordance with the Hebrew scriptures. You're going to see that a lot in Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Romans, elsewhere. When he shares the gospel, he's always going to share the the crucifixion, death, burial, in accordance with the scriptures, he says that because the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures are they for foretelling all this. They're predicting that all this stuff will happen. So he's saying in, in accordance with the scriptures, he died, he was buried, crucified, died and was buried. And then he, he recounts how Christ was then resurrected from the grave by God, which ultimately fulfilled God's promises to David to again establish one of his descendants as the source of divine blessings for Israel and the rest of the world. Again, when David died and and was buried, he didn't raise from the... He wasn't resurrected. His grave was still there in Jerusalem, okay? And that's Paul's point, is that now God has resurrected one who will never decay, who will never be subject to death, who will reign eternally on the throne of David in accordance with God's promises to David and to his offspring, his seed, okay? So he shares about the death, burial, and resurrection... And, uh, and all of that pointing towards the fulfillment of God's promises to David. And then Paul provides this synagogue audit audience with scriptural support. Paul knows his scriptures, okay? He was trained as a Pharisee under Gamaliel. He's just he's a ninja with the Old Testament, okay? And he understands it. So he brings out three passages that would have been familiar to them to support what he's saying in, ter- in terms of the gospel. In verse 33, he quotes a famous messianic psalm, Psalm 2, verse 7. And by quoting that, he's establishing that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the eternal Son of God. Okay? In verse 34, he quotes Isaiah 55, 3 to establish that Jesus is the eternal source of God's blessing through David. God had promised that this blessing would come to David. And his descendants, but through them to Israel and the rest of the world. And so he quotes that expectation. And then in verses 35 to 37, he quotes Psalm 1610 to establish that Jesus is the eternal son of David who would reign as king forever. See what he's doing? He's the eternal son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the eternal son of David who will rule forever on David's throne. And he's the eternal source of God's, the fulfillment of God's promises and God's blessings that will come through the line of David, through that anointed king, through that Messiah, to Israel and to the rest of the world. And he did that with like three short snippets of verses from the Old Testament. And finally, Paul includes a warning from Scripture. Because he he wants to motivate these people to action. He doesn't want to just give them information that they can chew on and go, whoa, that's an interesting fact about the Hebrew Scriptures. No, he wants to, to lead them to respond in faith. And so he quotes in verse 38 and 39... He quotes a warning from scripture he he first explains that anyone who believes in jesus and this is so emphasized in the text and you need to hear this anyone who believes in jesus has access will receive forgiveness and righteousness from god not a righteousness of your own he's not going to you know Give you the thumbs up like, yeah, you've been doing a great job. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll consider you righteous. No, we receive our righteousness from God. It's the righteousness of Christ that God wraps us in. It's alien. It's foreign to us. But we receive that righteousness. We receive forgiveness of sin. And all of that lays the foundation for our reconciled relationship with God and the arrival of the Holy Spirit into our now holy lives. Set apart unto Christ through faith. And then he, he quotes Habakkuk after he says this beautiful thing about anyone, anyone. doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter any of that. If you believe in Jesus, you'll have forgiveness and righteousness. Then he quotes Habakkuk 1.5. And he's emphasizing that the opposite of belief, that unbelief, can only lead to God's judgment with no forgiveness and no righteous standing before God. Guys, these are the only options. I'm not going to give you a fence to sit on. We, we can't give people a fence to sit on. Either you have righteousness and forgiveness through faith in Christ, or you will face inevitable judgment and separation from our holy God for the rest of eternity. There is no middle ground there, okay? And that's what he's saying. He says, and that's why he quotes Habakkuk. He wants them to know, guys, you can't sit on this information. You have to respond. You have to trust in Christ. The better we know the unchanging content of the gospel and how scripture supports that good news, the better we will be at communicating and contextualizing that message for different people. But there's another aspect of gospel ministry besides the content and the context. Gospel ministry is a contest. What do I mean by that? What is a contest? It means that we have opposition. This is why Paul uses so many metaphors of war and boxing and running and all these Olympic sports and things. It's because it's, it's hard. It's a challenge. We're going to face opposition. It's not going to come easy. In fact, gospel ministry is where spiritual warfare is the absolute thickest Man, if you're not doing anything that has anything to do with Jesus or the gospel, Satan has limited resources. He's not going to send a legion after you, okay? He's fine with you just, you know... I was talking to uh, John about the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. It's like, man, if you're just doing your thing and doing your recreational activities and just minding your own business, whatever, then, then he's not going to expend many resources on you, our enemy, Right? But if you're engaged in gospel ministry, if we as a local church are engaged in gospel ministry, if your family is engaged in gospel ministry, then that's where the spiritual warfare is going to be the thickest. And if we don't expect that, it's going to take us unawares. As we engage different groups of the gospel, we can absolutely expect to also be engaged by the enemies of God. And this is exactly what happens to Paul. In verses 42 to 45, Paul is ministering in and around the synagogue to Jewish people and to non-Jewish people who had converted to Judaism. These are the Gentiles that were either God-fearers or proselytes. And he's ministering to them. And, And some of these people respond with belief. He shares the gospel and the scriptural support for it and all these other things. And they respond with belief. And then Paul and Barnabas, what do they do? They urge them to continue on in the grace of God. And that's what you do with new believers, by the way, because they're going to come under spiritual attack quickly as well. And so you urge them to persevere, to endure in the grace of God, because they knew they weren't going to be there forever. And by the way, join your local church. Join that church family because you're going to need that support spiritually in every other way. Okay. Uh, and, and in fact, he was encouraging them. And so many people believe that what does it say in the scripture? It says almost the entire city came out to hear the word of the Lord on the next Sabbath. I mean, everybody is hearing about this message from these guys that showed up. And so almost the whole city shows up to hear the word of the Lord, it says. But some Jews were jealous and responded in unbelief by contradicting Paul and Barnabas. By saying, no, 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 that's not right. That's not how you interpret that, he, that verse from Isaiah. No, no, this is all wrong. We're the authority here. We're the ones that get to interpret Scripture. They're wrong. They contradicted them, and they slandered them. In verses 46 and 47, Paul rebukes his Jewish opponents. These are most likely the leaders of the synagogue, the the ones with the most to lose, the ones that are in the power structure that have the most to lose. He rebukes them for missing out on eternal life. He literally says, for judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And in the Old Testament backdrop to that, that means participation in the kingdom of God. It's like you're you're choosing to opt out of eternal life and, and being in God's kingdom. And then he quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6, to explain that he would now be turning his attention to the Gentiles in that region so that they too could take hold of salvation through the Jewish Messiah. And in verses 48 and 49, we see the Gentiles responding with belief. Remember, he goes to his beloved brethren uh, in the Jewish community. Paul's Jewish. So is Barnabas. They love these Jewish people. They want to see him believe in, to trust in the Jewish Messiah. But once they, whoever comes to faith, comes to faith, and then the leadership gets after them, they turn to the Gentiles. And that makes the leadership even more mad because now they're saying, what? These Gentiles, they're going to get in? They're going to be a part of God's kingdom? They don't even have to become Jewish first? This is crazy. And it makes them even matter, But all these Gentiles are super excited because they're hopeless people. They don't have hope of eternal life. They don't have hope for forgiveness and a reconciled relationship with God. They're in all these pagan weird rituals and stuff. They don't know what they're doing, but they certainly don't have hope. And so they turn to these Gentiles. And, uh, and these Gentiles are believing and they're, they're rejoicing and they're glorifying or honoring the word of the Lord. But look at this. We also see the sovereign hand of the Lord at work in the statement. Do they believe? Is that their volitional capacity, that they choose to believe in Jesus Christ? Just nod your heads, yes. Does it also say that all who had been appointed, that is appointed by God, to eternal life believed? Just nod your head, yes. All right. Man's volitional responsibility, volitional capacity, what, you know, whatever you want to call it. God's sovereignty, whatever you want to call that. It's, it's hand in hand in the book of Acts and all throughout Scripture. I just want to point that out. And then Luke records that the gospel was spreading throughout the whole region around Pisidian Antioch. So people start talking to people. They start talking to their cousin. Their cousin started talking to his neighbor. And all of a sudden, the word of the Lord is going out everywhere. But some of the jealous Jewish leaders responded in unbelief by then kind of amping it up. Now they're not just contradicting. Now they're taking the, the prominent women in Pisidian Antioch who had leverage, who had a soft spot in their heart for Judaism, and they get those prominent women to convince the leading men of the city to persecute Paul and Barnabas and to drive them out of the region. And so even as the missionaries are leaving town, they're shaking off the dust from their feet in judgment. This is an Old Testament practice where you say, I don't even want the dust of your city on my feet. I'm going to shake it out as we leave. It's, it's pronouncing judgment. It's saying that, you know, you, you better get with it, guys, as we move on. You have judgment upon you until you don't through faith. Um, And then they went along to the next stop on their missionary journey, which we'll see next week. And they knew as our final verse, verse 52 records, they knew that the Holy Spirit was going to remain in Pisidian Antioch to continually fill those new believers with joy even as they face persecution and do you know what one of the greatest evidences or fruits of the spirit is in our lives it's when we face difficulties and trials and even persecutions in different places around the world we can do so with joy and with peace and they knew that the holy spirit wasn't leaving pisidian antioch as they left that he would be there working in that church and in those people's lives Understanding that gospel ministry is a contest, guys, I'll call it a street fight sometimes. Understanding that will help us to persevere as we depend upon the power of the Lord to bring people to salvation and the presence of the Lord in their lives long after you and I are gone. We can trust that. Um, In Luke's gospel, which was the prequel to the book of Acts, so there's a lot of parallels in Luke's gospel and then Luke's sequel the the book of acts but in Luke's gospel the words of Jesus are recorded as he was sending out his 72 disciples to to go into all these cities and towns that Jesus was going to go into and to prepare people's hearts to believe in Jesus and as he's sending them out you guys remember this the savior says the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore plead with the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest and folks if we are followers of jesus christ if you call on the name of christ then we are laborers in his harvest there is no i'm a christian but i'm not laboring in the harvest you as a follower of jesus christ are laboring the harvest now how well we're doing that is up for debate but hopefully we're all, you know, becoming better laborers in the harvest. In other words, we're ministers of the gospel of God's grace, the message of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us that calls on the name of Christ. OK. And today's passage helps us become better laborers in that gospel ministry. Um, in terms of application. I'll, I'll kind of finish out with this so we can actually apply these things. Um, The ministry of Paul and Barnabas paradoxically challenges us to be bold and confident in Christ, but also humble and sensitive to his spirit. And this is is unique to Christianity, that we can be bold and confident, but also humble and sensitive and submitted to his spirit. We must be bold enough to step forward. We must be bold enough in Christ to step forward. Remember how our passage began? It began with a a missionary group of three being diminished to two. Why? It doesn't tell us exactly, but later on we see that Paul has a real problem with John Mark bolting from them. As they finished up Cyprus mission and moved on to the mainland, he bolted. And, you know, there is some evidence that Paul even, like, contracted malaria when they got to the swampy mainland and, and he got into Galatia, into these different towns, suffering bitterly, and now without John Mark to carry the baggage and to help baptize people and do all the things he had originally set out to do. So this very passage starts out with somebody walking away from gospel ministry, probably because there's, it was too challenging, it was too hard. But we have to be bold enough to step forward but we have to find our boldness in Christ. Guys, if any of us sets out in our own strength, in our own sense of boldness or confidence in ourselves, it's only a matter of time before we're going to burn out and, and drop away. Okay? And maybe that's what John Mark did. Maybe he launched out saying, I can do this. But he wasn't depending upon the Lord Uh, And none of us really know what we're getting into with gospel ministry. Guys, I wish I could say, this is what gospel ministry is going to look like in your life. I have no idea who God's going to put in your lives. I have no idea what opportunities you're going to have or where God's going to bring you. But I do know this. It will be challenging, but we can still step forward through faith in Christ. Second thing. So we have to be bold enough to step forward. We have to be humble enough to step back sometimes. What do I mean by that? Guys, this missionary journey began with Barnabas and Saul. Do you see the word order there? Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas was the leader. Barnabas was the guy vouching for Saul. Barnabas was the guy going to get Saul and bring him along into ministry. But then it quickly becomes Paul and Barnabas, and even Paul and his companions. In other words, Barnabas was humble enough as a mature Christian man to step back and let Paul take center stage in that gospel ministry. And folks, we also must be willing to step back and allow God to use whoever he wishes, however he wishes, rather than thinking that gospel ministry rises and falls on our own individual efforts, our own individual involvement. And that goes for all of us, including me. If I think that the way that Wayside is going to be effective in gospel ministry is if I'm the guy preaching all the time, if I'm the guy, you know, in the lead pastor role, then I am in error, okay? Because gospel ministry doesn't rise and fall on the individual, and we have to embrace that. And that makes us more sensitive and more humble to receive other people when God puts them in the spotlight, and we all have to do that. All right, finally, we must be confident enough to step away when the time comes. Guys, Paul and Barnabas left in Antioch. They didn't remain. They moved on to Iconium, not because they were scared of persecution. Please note that. They were not terrified and running because they were scared of persecution, but because they wanted to share the gospel with other people in other places. They had done what they needed to do there, and they were moving on. And they trusted, again, that the Holy Spirit was going to remain with those new believers, with that new church, to help them persevere with joy as they continued in the grace of God. And so they were, uh, they were able to step away knowing that God was going to take care of that ministry. And folks, my, and I'll conclude with this. My hope and my prayer is that all of us here at Wayside would grow in our understanding of the gospel and gospel ministry, just like we talked about today. My prayer and my hope is that we would become loving students of the people around us to better understand their personalities and their perspectives and their background and their pain. That we would become growing students of God's Word to better understand how the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus in its promises and how the fulfillment of God's promises was carried out in the New Testament. That we would become so familiar with the unchanging content of the Gospel that we would be able to adapt it to any and every person searching for hope. That it would just come natural to us that we would be not dismayed by challenges to gospel ministry and the opposition that we will inevitably encounter, that we would be bold and confident in Christ, but at the very same time, humble-hearted and sensitive and submitted to the Holy Spirit. And folks, as we pursue those ends, God will use us in ways that we could never have imagined. And next week, we are going to follow the missionaries down to two now, We're going to follow them to a different city, but Paul's gospel ministry, and you'll see this, it's going to mirror much of what we saw today in Pisidian Antioch, so it's going to feel like it's on repeat, and there's a reason for that. Um, So we'll look at that next week.